So we're stuck in the situation where the tendency towards bureaucratization is always there. And that's why the rank and file approach to things, I think, is so important, because it's the only way to combat that. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hi, this is uh, Kate Doyle Griffiths. Welcome to our Spectre Live event here with Kim Moody um, about the rank and file strategy. Spectre is a new Marxist journal that takes as our kind of point of departure um, a Marxism that is rooted in um, black liberation, in queer liberation, um, in in Marxist feminism, in internationalism, um, and in the sort of independence of the working class. So if you haven't checked out Spectre in written form or on the web, you should go ahead and do that. But uh, welcome to Spectre in the form of a live streaming event. Um, we're very lucky to be joined here today um, by Kim Moody. Um, Kim was a founder of Labor Notes in the United States and is the author of several books on labor and politics, including On New Terrain, How Capital is Reshaping the Battleground of, Battleground of Class War, which is published, not entirely incidentally, by Haymarket Books. He is currently a visiting scholar at the University of Westminster in London and a member of the University College Union and the National Union of Journalists. Um, and I'm going to introduce myself just a little bit. I'm Kate, and like I said, I'm an editor of Spectre. I'm also a cultural anthropologist. I teach at Brooklyn College, and I'm a member of the CUNY PSC. So um, without much further ado, I think I'm going to hand over the beginning of this uh, session to Kim. Hey, thank you, Kate. And uh, thanks to Spectre for, for having me here. Okay, the rank and file strategy. Um, Marx and Engels uh, looked at trade unions uh, in Britain and actually early on sort of saw them as schools of class struggle, schools of socialism, schools where workers could learn how to run a complex organization as well as engaging in in class struggle and so forth uh, in, in such a way that they saw this contributing to the working class, as they put it, making itself fit to rule. Well, of course, they ran into a problem. The unions they were looking at, uh, as time passed, became more bureaucratic uh, and more conservative with the leaders supporting the Liberal Party and, and something they didn't approve of. Um, and obviously, today in, in the United States or here in the UK or most places in the world, um, but particularly, I think, in, in the United States, the unions are enormous, multi-jurisdictional, bureaucratic, top-down organizations that prefer a passive membership, except at maybe contract time or when the leadership needs some kind of uh, 
power behind them in negotiations or something like that, but generally prefers a passive membership. Well, obviously, this is not a school for socialism or a school for uh, revolution or, or anything of the sort. So rank and file movements historically uh, have arisen to deal with this problem. Uh, these can go back all the way to the early years in the uh, 20th century, at least, and possibly even before that. Um, and often they've been led by socialists or radicals of some sort or other. But they, they've come out of, uh, obviously, the ranks of the unions wanting not only union democracy, but the militancy and, and effective uh, action, direct action and so forth, that the leadership is often uh, not willing to to show the leadership uh, has a position that is different from the people they left behind in the workplace and so forth. And so uh, even even here in Britain, where a lot of the top union leaders call themselves socialists, their practice is not all that different from uh, most American unions. Um, so, so it's a problem uh, that socialists have tried to address and, and actually rank-and-file workers have tried to address, often by forming movements inside their union, sometimes these uh, cross multiple unions, uh, but, but whatever. The idea of a rank-and-file strategy, in other words, is first and foremost meant to address the problem that unions uh, are not addressing the historical role that Marx and Engels, or the working class for that matter, uh, would like to see them address. Uh, they're, they're not effective. This is so clear in the case of the United States, where the unions have shrunk and shrunk and shrunk, uh, <clears throat> and have given concessions, have engaged in, in labor management cooperation schemes, and, and are still doing all of these, uh, all of these things. So uh, historically, then. Um, these movements come and go, but they they are ever recurring back in in the life of uh, the U.S. labor movement. Now, also historically, socialists of various types have had basically two ways of relating to the trade unions, particularly when they're outside of them, uh, but even when they're inside of them. One that that is very common is basically to relate to the leadership of these unions in the belief that this way you can influence their, uh, you know, their direction, their politics and, and their ideas, um, and not to intervene in the internal affairs of unions. Uh, in the U.S., uh, for example, in the 1930s, the Communist Party, while it played an enormous role in the initial upsurge that produced the CIO, the industrial unions of that period, um, after or beginning about 1937, uh, related mainly to the major leaders, as well as to the Roosevelt administration, but to the major leaders of these new unions or became the major leaders of these unions. Uh, and in, in, in that way, they actually participated in the beginnings of the bureaucratization of the very unions they had helped to form in the first place. Um, in the 1970s and 80s, 
what is now DSA, what was DSOC and, and DSA engaged in uh, through the um, in, engaged in trying to move the Democratic Party to the left related to the labor movement again by relating primarily to the, to the more liberal elements in, in the labor bureaucracy so that uh, until the you know the enormous change that's taken place in DSA uh, that was sort of the, the major strategy there. Um, on the other hand, socialists, particularly revolutionary socialists, uh, have tended to say that, no, this isn't going to work. It just, in fact, usually reinforces the, the bureaucracy um, that we need to uh, engage directly uh, with the rank and file, either by working there or various ways relating to rank and file movements that come or sometimes even helping to initiate such movements. Uh, so that has been the, the idea there. And the way that usually works is, first of all, the idea of building workplace power. This is something that the American labor bureaucracy, more or not all of it, but most of it, had abandoned a long time ago, leaving the workplace to management, essentially. So for socialists, the idea of building a strong workplace organization and using their power there uh, at the point of production and so forth as a starting point uh, for building power more generally within the, the broader workplace and in the union itself, and by implication, and I guess we'll talk about this more later, and in society as a whole. So that's the rank and file strategy in, in its simplest form. Often this means forming caucuses in the union, uh, but it also means leading actions, direct action, whenever that's possible. And again, as I say, organizing people, building strong workplace organizations, shop stewards uh, organization, and things of that sort. Um, so there are some advantages from the, looking at it from the perspective of socialists trying to relate to a union to the working class more broadly even, uh, is that working in the unions provides a finite uh, political context. That is, not only the workplace as a political context, but the union is a political institution. It has elections, it has meetings, it has tendencies within it, as well as stratified, uh, you know, between the stratification between the members and the leaders. And so this is the idea of locating these movements at the kind of center of the capital labor relations uh, thing in a context that, that is clear uh, and definite. I think that is an advantage that rank and file work in the unions has over a lot of social movement activity, which is necessarily in a, in a broader, more amorphous setting, uh, sometimes more difficult. Uh, which does not mean by any means that right file work always works. Uh, but nonetheless, I think that's an important part of it. Um, so I think that um, this has been sort of what uh, has been the, the center of, of politics of, of a lot of the revolutionary socialists for quite a while, you know, in the United States and to a lesser extent here in Britain as well. 
Um, but I think it also relates to something else, which is which is going on now, and that is how do we redress the fact that the labor movement itself has shrunk to this tiny proportion of the working class? Obviously, if we just have a rank and file movement or a set of rank and file movements in a shrinking union movement, labor movement, then you know this is not um, this is not going to have the kind of power that that we're after that, that this perspective would, would like to see. So it also relates to the whole question of how unions are organized and how we approach. And I'm, I'm going to talk about Amazon as an example here uh, because it's such an obvious one right now. Uh, but also because it's, I think, by analogy, uh, in a certain sense, with what General Motors was to the industrial unions in the 1930s. The key place where if a breakthrough could be made there, uh, you know, then organizing the sort of the rest of industry becomes becomes somewhat easier. It's, it's never quite that simple. But I think if you can bring down the biggest bunch of them, uh, capitalists, uh, then, you know, you, you inspire people to uh, follow your example and so forth, which is sort of what happened in the 30s, in particular with the sit-down strikes and, and so on. Now, what were they? They were not something that was designed from above by some bureaucracy and so forth. Most of the ideas for them came out of people who were current rank-and-file workers in, in General Motors plants, and, and also before that, actually, in rubber tire plants, and this would eventually spread. Uh, to everything from dime stores to hospitals. But uh, in, in the case of General Motors in Flint, um, this came from the ranks, some of whom became full-timers like, say, uh, Bob Travis and so forth, but many of whom did not. Uh, who did that? They couldn't have done this without people in the shops to do the organizing uh, that would what was required to do a, a plant occupation. Um, so what I'm saying is that essentially the rank and file orientation relates to organizing as well. So if we look at Amazon today, okay, there is this important organizing drive that's going on in Bessemer, Alabama, which almost everybody is aware of and looking at. This is extremely important that they win and everything. Um, but there are a couple of problems here. One is that it's a very conventional organizing drive in many ways. Uh, NLRB election and, and all this kind of thing. Um, and what I would argue is that uh, I'm not saying the, the workers aren't playing a key role in this. Obviously, they are. They're helped by the fact that the vast majority of them are black workers. So they have more going here than just the union identity. And, and that's important. Um, but Nonetheless, if we think about Amazon, here's one place where it's being done. There's another thing going on at Amazon in Iowa by the Teamsters, uh, which is not nearly as far advanced. Uh, <clears throat> okay, two locations that are being organized by official unions. The problem is that there are currently 819 Amazon facilities in the United States alone. Uh, with another plan, 268 to be built in the coming years. Uh, that number, the 800 plus, is double what it was two years ago. 
workforce is now something like 850,000 to a million people, depending on which estimate you, you see, up from 500,000 two years ago. So you see this thing is like growing enormously, enormously. You're never going to organize this thing conventionally, one NLRB election, you know, to the to the next, using professional staff organizers. Uh, and first of all, there just aren't enough of them in all the unions combined to, to do this. It's going to have to be something that comes from the ranks and that the labor movement, the unions who have the resources to aid this, recognize and and latch on to rather than trying to tame and contain, you know, in this legal framework, which is obviously designed for unions to fail more often than not. So again, you know, the, the rank and file approach here, uh, both in the sense of encouraging the unions we're in to do this kind of organizing, but much more than that, to begin to get union members around the country to become people who support whatever the Amazon workers do, uh, to do mass picketing if that's what's required, as was the case in Flint, Michigan. Uh, and also to think about, uh, and this is my, my other uh, thing that I talk about a lot, you know, is, is the question of strategy within logistics. That is, what made it work in, in Flint, Michigan in 1937 was they finally found the right plant to sit down in, which right. is shift four, that cut off all the engines that were produced for, for Chevrolet uh, at the time. Well, if you look at Amazon, it is one big logistics company, the most sophisticated one probably in the world. Everything there depends on speed. And when a company depends on speed, that's when we have extra power. Right. Uh, so, but it has to be the we. It has to be the rank and file. It can't just be the leadership turning this on and off and, and, and so forth. Uh, and so that, I think, is, uh, you know, is, is important. Um, but I think also moving kind of beyond that, the question is, well, okay, if we have these rank and file movements, mostly they won't control the unions, although they can influence what they do. Um, that's not at all out of the question. And in some cases, I think we, we have a couple of opportunities for the Teamsters and, and once again, perhaps in the UAW, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're going to get the uh, right to vote directly on top leaders, which will shake things up, whether they win. You know, they have a rank and file group now. I don't know how strong it is. It's probably not very strong, but they have the possibility to, uh, to shake things up in that union, which is important because half that industry is not organized. And half the assembly part isn't organized. Almost all of the parts industry is not organized, and, and that's another thing that that needs to be done and in which a rank and file approach, again, is, is to my mind, um, you know, absolutely necessary. Okay, what about now going beyond just the workplace, the industry, and, and the union to working class people generally uh, in, in the other social movements that have arisen uh, with some bases in the working class at least? Uh, even if they are sometimes cross-class movements like Black Lives Matter or the women's strike movement or climate change movement, uh, movements which have interestingly have adopted the strike 
even though these are not labor union-based movements, they have adopted the strike as their, their own thing. Well, I, I would say about that uh, a couple of things um, that I think are um, important. One is, first of all, that union membership reflects people who are in all of these movements. That is, union membership today is, is probably the most diverse single institution that we have, with uh, some some exceptions, but uh, you know, it's now almost half women. It's now about a third people of color, uh, and and they are these are the groups groups that are growing. There's no no doubt about that. And these are the groups that are employed by Amazon uh, and the other big players now that need to be brought down and, and organized. So that's the first thing. The issues of things like gender and race and so forth, these come up in the workplace, the American workplace, all the time. Um, you know, the question then becomes, well, how do we connect that to the movement in the streets? Well, some people are doing that. Some you find union members going into the streets with Black Lives Matter or whatever. Uh, I'm not saying it's a simple thing, but one of the jobs of socialists, of course, in the midst of these rank and file movements in the midst of this new organizing and all of this uh, is precisely to raise these issues, precisely to make the point that, look, you know, we can get so much power over our employer in, through this union, perhaps, but we know it doesn't end there. We know that the, the bigger things in the economy are not just controlled, even by the likes of Jeff Bezos, uh, you know, and that. We need, uh, we need a kind of power we haven't had for a long time. We're not getting it through electoral politics now, no matter what some people think, you know. Uh, goodbye to Trump, that's nice, but, you know, we're not getting the kind of, of, of power that is actually needed uh, to, to make the big changes uh, that most people seem to want these days in one way or another. Uh, so finally, you know, I would just say that uh, it's important, I think, that uh, socialists, uh, whatever organization they're in or network or whatever it is, uh, think once again about, uh, you know, their role in, in all of this. We've seen the teachers uprising, that's fantastic. It's had a, an effect on teachers' unions all across the country. That's still going on. Most parts are still going on. Uh, and that can be, you know, complicated, but, but uh, that fight is still going on. We need to take that farther. There's going to be a change in leadership in the Teamsters' Union probably later this year. Uh, I'm not saying these people are going to take over our revolutionary socialists or anything like that, they're not, but they will, they do have a certain interest in, in doing things uh, differently from the old guard. Uh, and they're based in UPS, which is a major base of this, gives them a diverse workforce that they have to relate to, um, you know, and, and pretty well organized one with that. So I think there are some possibilities there. I mentioned the UAW with this thing of uh, they're, they're having a vote on whether to get the vote, uh, that is whether to get the vote on uh, top offices directly. The UAW has been run by the administration caucus, which has its power through the convention system. 
if that is taken away, uh, you know, there's, there's likely to be some big openings there. And there are probably many other places where uh, this could happen. So uh, I just read an interesting article uh, by uh, Peter Olney and uh, Rand Wilson, who were actually saying something like what I'm saying about how if we're going to get Amazon or, or any of these places, uh, that it cannot be done in the traditional way. It has to come uh, from the participation of, of the members uh, and so forth. So I think um, that, to me, is is obviously not the only thing that socialists should do, but I think it has to be a central part of the strategy of this new socialist movement that has taken shape um, in the U.S. So uh, that is... That is my recommendation. <laughs> Thanks, Kim. I, I, I think we're all very surprised that that's your recommendation. I think that's, that's been the recommendation for quite a while, but I'm really yeah. glad that we're here to have your kind of updated um, perspective on it, especially because I think um, it's not just like I think, I, I think this is sort of an undeniable fact. There's like a lot more interest in the rank and file strategy than you know, I've seen in my adult life, and that probably also feels novel um, to you after many years of both kind of low class struggle and low mobilization on the left and low interest in the labor movement and workplace activity on the left that feels like there's a certain kind of renewed or or even nude, uh, you know, novel uh, interest in the rank and file strategy among socialists. And part of that really is, I think, part of this much larger kind of flowering of the socialist idea, at least in the United States and in um, other, you know, some other parts of the world, although I don't think it's a completely even global uh, phenomenon. Um, and so that's one of the reasons that I sort of uh, decided to write about the rank and file strategy. I, you know, of course, read um, your pamphlet on this topic many, many years ago, probably 20 years ago um, or something like that now. And it, it, for me, it was very transformative uh, of my entire worldview and, and sort of planned for, for my life in a certain sense, um, particularly when I sort of then learned the kind of ins and outs of the history of really this quite small number of socialists who had adopted the rank and file strategy and then had some of the some really big effects in this very period, this period of very low struggle, like in the in the 90s and the early 2000s. So particularly like uh, the importance of TDU, Teamsters for a Democratic Union, in um, making possible the UPS strike um, in, in the 90s. That was one of the only kind of large uh, labor actions and one of the only ones that actually had any kind of success um, during that period. And then for me, also the kind of battle in Seattle uh, was something that wouldn't have, in fact, been. Uh, this is so old that you actually have to explain to people what the battle in Seattle was. But it, so this is 1999. Um, some, you know, anarchist protesters, some uh, the Teamster local there at the time, headed by a, a guy called Bob Hasegawa, who was a TDU reformer. Um, you know, and some anarchists throwing rocks at Starbucks windows, which was kind of the big image of the event, but actually successfully shut down a meeting of the World Trade Organization. And for me, you know, I was I was 18 at the time. And so that was a quite um, impressive thing to have happen. I, it, it really shocked me and made me feel like, oh, wait, like history is happening 
in the streets. Like history is not actually over. All this stuff I heard about, you know, before I was born isn't some relic of the past. And that really changed my direction on uh, it in, in what I thought was interesting and important in the world and what I, where I wanted to fit into that. Um, and it was only later I found out that TDU actually had played a role, obviously in reforming the Teamsters local there in a way that actually made that kind of uh, connection with this broader social movement and this global social movement, which is the other interesting thing about that at the time, um, even possible. And so that for me was what I found really compelling about the rank and file strategy was that it was something that had demonstrated the possibility of small numbers of, of committed and organized revolutionaries actually being able to play, have an impact on, on both mass struggle and also winning reforms through direct action and through uh, workplace action um, kind of provably in a way that felt possible to participate in, right? Even given the smallness of the left and the low, low tide of struggle that existed at that time. Um, and I say all this not just to talk about myself, but I think to kind of, for me, contextualize what's different about this moment um, 20 years later and kind of why there is so much renewed interest in the rank and file strategy. What are the differences that we see today? And I'm going to say a little bit about what I think, but then I'm going to ask you what you think. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that um, there are many kind of conjunctural factors, right, that are just radicalizing people in lots of different ways, one of which, of course, is this kind of... Uh, Whoops. That was like kicks the light in my house. It's a good, janky, lush. Um Okay, you're back. Can't hear you. Uh-oh. Oh, uh, hold on. For I can reason. hear you. Now I can. Okay, now you can hear me? Okay, great. Is that better? Okay, sorry about that. Sorry about that. My, my computer decided to suddenly switch microphones for no particular reason. Um, thanks, computer. Um, but yeah, so... We have this kind of much, I don't know about much broader, but broader layer of, of people who are interested in socialist politics all of a sudden. And, you know, in part maybe because the kind of avenue for highly paid working class jobs, the avenue for kind of professional uh, advancement, professional jobs have been increasingly constrained by austerity, by downward pressure on wages. Um and that's radicalized people. We also have had, you know, a series of climate crises, a series of, well, we've just had a huge pandemic. We've had a series of um, sort of big events, long running wars. Those are all things that I think have led to this a, a general, if slight, increase in class consciousness and also socialist, socialist the popularity of socialist politics. Um, but. And while I think, you know, you and I are both uh, ever optimistic, right, about the possibility of a new wave of class struggle appearing um, and have seen, you know, there's these little moments that look like maybe we're on the cusp of that, right? Like the, the uh, as you mentioned, like the teacher strike for me, the teacher strike in West Virginia, I got to go there and kind of be there at the moment when they decided to go on wildcat strike. And it was a like really exciting moment for me that felt like, well, this really could be a turning point in kind of the, not just the 
the quality of class struggle, but the quantity of class struggle, right? And it, it happened. People were very inspired by it, took up this challenge, but it didn't turn into like a new wave of mass strikes like the 1930s, right? Um, and, you know, even in the pandemic, which I, I don't want to be somebody who celebrates the absolute horror show and, and frankly, disgusting murder of now hundreds of thousands of people in the United States, um, but it did have these little moments where you saw not just a sort of uptick in, in workplace activity, but an uptick in the radicalism of workplace activity that you saw workers doing things like appropriating the plant to new ends, right? That they thought were more socially necessary, right? That were important, right? Turning your plant into something that makes PPE instead of what else it previously made, right? Or people turning their distillery into uh, hand sanitizer production and and really also work, workers making the decision to exchange these kinds of items across industries. There's a lot of, there's a lot of really neat stories like that that just sound like something that you might have read in a history book um, if you're somebody who reads history books about labor struggle. And so for that, for me too, is this little window onto like the possibility of a, of a new upsurge as a, somebody may have coined. Um, but I, but, but we're not exactly there yet. And I guess I'm, I'm sort of curious about how you think those things fit together. Because when I sort of wrote my piece in response to you, partly that was the question that was motivating me, right? When I first read the, the rank and file strategy, the question of the socialist party was really a, a, a one for, you know, um, I don't know, uh, science fiction and, and fantasy, really. That wasn't something that was so much on the table in 2000, 2001, when I encountered this idea. But now, of course, this is one of the main subjects of, under discussion on the socialist left broadly, not just the revolutionary socialist left. And so the kind of way that the, you know, the original articulation of the rank and file strategy kind of walks up to that question of the socialist party um, was one place where I, where I just noticed that we're now in a different context. But I think there's a kind of much broader question of, of this new context that I uh, would ask you to comment on. Um, what do you, what do you think is going on? Uh, well, I agree with all of what you said. Um, and I'm just to add some things. I, I think we're, we're actually in terms of work, just to talk for a minute about work. I think we're in an entirely different world than we were 20 years ago. Um, the role of surveillance, technological surveillance, uh, artificial intelligence and in guiding people's work, you know, algorithms like at, at Amazon and all this sort of stuff. Uh, this didn't exist 20 years ago, and, and it's, it's everywhere. It's in hospitals. It's not just factory work anymore that does this, it's, or warehouses even there. You know, it, it is literally everywhere. The idea of quantification and standardization of all kinds of work uh, has become uh, universal and, and I think, you know, is, is basically for a huge numbers of people, including people who might consider themselves middle class and so forth, has, has changed the way they, they look at their work, has changed what the work has, has done to their lives. And underlying this is, is a whole change in the way things move. This is my logistics thing again. But it, it, logistics today is different from what it was 20 years ago uh, because of the technology, because of the way people have discovered length, because of the emphasis 
on speed in competition. And of course, Amazon is the perfect example of that. Uh, speed and and dependability are how corporations um, com- compete with one another, uh, not only in, in retail markets, but you know in parts markets and in supply chains and, and all the rest of that. And that makes things more vulnerable. I think that's one of the reasons why you find these these high tech people, uh, you know, or Amazon, Facebook, uh, Google, whatever, hysterical about unions is because they actually understand. That you can even read this in in the um, in Amazon's SEC 10K form. That's their tax form to uh, the government. You know. You can, you can actually read their, between the lines, their fear of how easy it is to disrupt them. So that's a change, too, you know. Uh, and, and I think the other thing is that the, the, uh, you were started saying this. I mean, the, the ability of a whole new generation or two or three generations by now of people to work their way up. You know, say from you know being a graduate student to being a tenured professor, for ninety percent of people, that's out the window. You know, you're going to end up when I taught at Brooklyn College or or here in the UK, I was a, an adjunct. That's all you could do, and the majority of people doing this were were adjuncts. So, you know, that's and when you get down into people talk about the gig economy, but it isn't just that kind of work. Those jobs, by the way, are becoming more intensely corporate, more organized. I don't mean by unions. I mean by capital, uh, the delivery people and, and all these. Uh, you know, For the record, I, I'm, do, I'm doing both adjuncting and delivery, gig delivery. So I, I've, I've, I've got you on I'm both. the perfect example <laughs> of <new> proletariat. <laughs> right. Uh, right. So yes, I think this this all these things that, that have happened, these changes in capitalism in the last twenty years, and particularly since the two thousand and eight Great Recession, they have never managed to really pull themselves out of that capital. I mean, uh, globally, um, you know, and and the, the rise of new competition from China, all these things are making life not only for working class people and even middle class people, but but for capital too. And that's good for us. Uh, you know, we want them to be worried, uh, even though they'll do things we don't like, of course, all the time. Um, and the other thing, though, is I think the pandemic thing, I think not only all these, these wonderful actions that you were talking about, but I think in a more universal sense, all of a sudden, millions of people who did these shit jobs that they thought were shit jobs discovered they're essential workers. Even frontline workers, who knows? You know, so their attitude, I think not everybody, but the attitude of many people towards their place in society, their, their how dependent society and the economy is on them, I think has been elevated. And that, to me, is one of the, the key changes in consciousness. Uh, and I think that's why you get so much rebellion, and not just union organizing, but rebellion in, in not only Amazon, but all these different Uber and you know, all these different places. People are suddenly discovering that somebody thinks they matter and that their work matters and that if they don't do their work, there's a big problem. Uh, so I, I see these things as building blocks to the, to the potential, uh, not 
inevitable, but the, the potential for, yes, a kind of bigger upsurge. And I think the growth of the socialist movement in the United States, uh, we haven't seen anything like this in, in generations. Uh, even the 60s and 70s was, was much more confused than this. And I think, you know, in terms of the politics of the people who consider themselves on the left, uh, so, not that it isn't confused now, but uh, it's a different thing. It's a different kind of identity that we haven't seen for a long time. When you begin to put these things together, uh, well, you know, there, there's a lot of potential here. Um, if people take, you know, kind of grab the opportunity, I think that's the important thing. Yeah, I wanted to, I, I have a couple more questions before I, I get to let other people ask you questions. Um, so, I'm going to take my opportunity and run with it. Um, I guess one of the one of the things that you said was about kind of it's the job of socialists to raise like kind of broader social issues on the shop floor, whether that be, you know, questions of police brutality or, or racism in the work, you know, whatever, like feminism, you know, uh, queer transphobia, that kind of stuff. Um, I guess I wanted to ask you a little bit about examples of because um, you probably actually know more of these examples than I do. Um, it's kind of something like the reverse, because we've seen that here in New York, and I, I can think of it sort of current examples of the reverse thing, where one of the ways that you can build labor organization is actually by having worker organizations take some leadership and initiative in the context of these broader struggles when they erupt. So, for example, um, in New York, some of the some of the people that I organize with who are organizing service industry workers. Um, uh, organized also a march, actually one of the first marches for um, uh, specifically uh, Black Women's Lives Matter and for Breonna Taylor. Um, and uh, it was the, the first kind of worker organization to call a march during the uprising in, in New York. And that actually had, a, a in their case, a really positive impact on their ability to organize in the shops that they're trying to organize in. Um, and so at least for me, I, I see that these are complementary uh, role of socialists and relationship between kind of rank and file struggle and and these broader social movements. And I just wanted to ask ask you about that side of things. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you again, let's go to the 30s for a minute. Um, before people were organizing strikes and building unions, they were doing tenant work, uh, you know, stopping evictions. They were having hunger marches. People learn organizing uh, strategies and techniques in those movements and carried them into the workplace when they finally got a job again. Uh, you know, so that's an example of that. The other example in my own personal life was the impact of the civil rights movement on the organization of public sector workers. There is no question that that was the major thing. Um, in, in the six, late 60s and into the well into the 70s. Uh, my own experience was in the Baltimore Welfare Department, um, you know, where I got a job because I had a wife and a kid. Okay. Yes, and uh, <laughs> got a job there. And, you know, I looked around me and, you know, there's two or three, four people I knew from the movement, civil rights movement. Right. And, you know, then there are other people who started talking to people. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was out there on the community, blah, blah, blah. I sat in on Saturday and blah. And so we basically pulled together the veterans of the civil rights movement in Baltimore 
uh, and uh, organized a union. There were no professional organizers. No union wanted to yeah, touch them. Uh, we went to ask me, and they said, no, 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 we're never organized social work, so forget that. So we organized it ourselves, uh, and it worked. You know, we put some direct action and, and got recognized and, and so forth. But it was the civil rights movement, and that also made it possible for us to, as a union, have an alliance with the Welfare Finance Organization right from the beginning. Uh, you know, so things, things fit together. When the movements are there and when the people start building unions, uh, you know, you're going to have this, this interaction, like you said, it might start from the outside, as, as it did in the case you know, I was just talking about. Um, if we hadn't been through that movement and we just went there and had a job at the welfare department, that's all there would have been to it, probably. I mean, of course, I was already a socialist, so I knew about unions, and that's what you do when you get a job. But yeah, nonetheless, sure. <laughs> what made it possible was was the impact of the civil rights movement uh, that, you know, by the time we got the job, it was kind of already in Baltimore, at least beginning to define, because it won some of the impacts. But there were the veterans. Uh, right. And ideas, you know. And Skills. this is a black and white union, 50-50, basically. Uh, so, you know, so, well, I think think I'm going to skip my next question, which was, can you tell me some stuff about the rank and file strategy in the public sector? Because I think we usually hear about it more often in the private sector, but you covered that in that last answer. So I'm going to move on, um, to, um, uh, another question I have kind of about this, you know, this sort of aspect of the rank and file strategy that really takes on the bureaucratization of unions as really a limit and a check on workplace organizing, but also kind of like a bottleneck for um, the union's connection to any kind of broader uh, politics that might be outside of, um, you know, whatever party unions are attached to. But in this case, of course, that's the, that's the Democratic Party here in the United States. Um, and specifically what I wanted to ask was, you know, the, there seems to be a dynamic here that I, I, I'm interested in in your take and expanding on where um, the absolute weakness of unions in the U.S. at this point, um, but yet also their continued existence. Right? I'm, I'm really thinking of, of West Virginia teachers as the kind of thing that I think brought this to my attention, to a lot of people's attention, that in a certain sense, the weakness of the teachers unions in West Virginia prior to that strike in a right to work state in a, um, a state with this like long history of labor struggle, but where, where, you know, unionization is very sparse and in and outside of the public sector where, you know, there wasn't, it's not very staffed up, you know, part of either of the major teachers unions. Um, it's far away from the kind of bureaucratic central location of the teachers unions. Um, which I don't have the privilege of being. And and that in some ways made it harder for, or, or sort of created an opening, right, for this kind of rank and file struggle that did emerge. Um, and I guess I'm, I'm asking you about it because I've sort of seen on the one hand, people say this is evidence that like, of this kind of accelerationist attitude toward unions, like fuck unions, let's just get rid of them and do rank and file work. You know, they're always in the way and, and uh, that kind of stuff. Um, and I've seen, you know, sort of contrary moves to kind of, uh, paper over that conflict there between the rank and file and, and the 
the bureaucracy that took place in West Virginia and really across the teachers unions subsequently coming from the, the sort of much more organized and dense sections of the bureaucracy in that union trying to, you know, take yeah. credit really for the, the success of workers and then uh, use that to shut down further struggle, not to put too much of my own opinion on it. Um, but I guess I, I'm curious what, what you have to say about that dynamic of really union weakness being at a certain point bureaucratic weakness that creates an opening, but also maybe, you know, isn't so great in certain ways. Anyway, that's my uh, question. Okay. Yeah, that's kind of an angle I hadn't thought much about, I have to admit. I mean, you're absolutely right in terms of the, you know, the teachers, not, not only in West Virginia, but several of the other states that, that joined in that movement. Right. But at the same time, you know, in Los Angeles, this rank and file work in Los Angeles had been going on for decades, and they finally got somewhere. Uh, or in to be, Chicago. To be fair, I think it might have been Joel Jordan that gave me the initial spark of this discussion. So. Yeah. In LA. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, he, he's a better, you know, all of those. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in, in Chicago, uh, you know, again, a long period of organizing before the West Virginia thing. I mean, they yeah. were the, you know, they were the, the first big breakthrough came there in a highly bureaucratized thing. Um, New York uh, looks like, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm in conversation with people in, in that union and the more caucus and so forth. And, you know, it's like, this is the hardest thing. Nobody builds, nobody builds a bureaucratic leadership like former socialists. And that's and the, that's the UFT. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and the UAW and you know, right. even through these unions, they knew how to organize and how to organize a bureaucracy. So we have to learn how to uh, counter-organize, and people are doing that. I, you know, the, the things are growing even in the UFT in, in, in New York. So I, I think it's a, it's exciting. I, I I I can't think of too many places that are analogous to um, you know to, to the West Virginia situation in, in terms of they have two unions with most people weren't members of it and. But a lot of the people who led the thing were, you know, members of it. Mm -hmm. And they didn't have the idea. They had the idea of going around the union leadership. And here's the thing I, I think it's important. We can't talk about the unions. Uh, the union is actually a social uh, structure. You know, uh, the bureaucracy is, is a strata, a social strata in, in the labor movement. Right. Uh, you know, there are secondary leaders. It's it's a diverse, uh, layered uh, social phenomenon. And that's the way we have to look at it. So, uh, you know, I think we, we all talk about the unions, but actually we have to be careful. If we want to have any, get anywhere in politically in, in changing them and expanding them and building new ones that don't turn into the same old thing, we have to understand the problem of bureaucracy, you know, that it's, it's it's not an iron law of oligarchy, but it is a strong tendency, and always has been everywhere. Uh, you know, so people can fight it uh, and, and can make changes, uh, but you have to be conscious of what it is you're, you're dealing. With. So I think the idea, well, let's lead the union and we'll just do rank and file stuff, is not going to work. You need organization. You need resources. You need these things. 
that unions do have. Uh, you know, we can't really get around that. So we're stuck in a situation where the tendency towards bureaucratization is always there. And that's why the rank and file approach to things, I think, is so important, because it, it's the only way to combat that. Uh, you know, leaving the unions never works, uh, you know, as far as I can see. Uh, so that that's, you know, I think an important thing to understand. Well, sort of along these lines, and before I have to give you over to other people to ask you questions, um, I guess part of that too, right, is that, you know, each unions in the U.S., different internationals are actually structured very, very differently internally. And I think that's, that's important to think about too in terms of, you know, how we think about the bureaucracy. And sometimes that often doesn't even really match the kind of external politics of a given union. Like, you know, I'm a member of the PSC, which means I'm officially a member of American Federation of Teachers. And I actually went to the convention a couple years back for the first time ever. And I was absolutely shocked by it because the only other union convention I'd really been to was Teamster conventions, which like, you know, have this very long history of being quite sort of you know, mobbed up and you might get in a fist fight at any given teamster convention with like a bunch of teamsters. Um, but compared to the teamsters convention, the AFT for me was like, like AFT made the teamsters convention look like a riot of democracy. I don't think there was a single uh, rank and filer who spoke like even at a podium in a small breakout room that I saw, let alone like on, on stage. Um, and it was just sort of shockingly controlled compared to, the actually, and now, you know, more democratic kind of uh, process that takes place in the Teamsters Union. Um, and I, I mentioned this just because I know there are people who are checking this broadcast out who are who are trying to put the rank and file strategy into practice. And, you know, I think that's one element that often gets kind of overlooked in strategizing about how your rank and file work might relate to existing unions if you are actually not yet in a workplace that's unionized, um, that's something to really consider. I think um, how, what is the structure of the union that you might work with or, or go into in terms of actually being able to continue and advance a shop floor perspective and a rank and file perspective. Um, here's my last one for you uh, before I ask you some things that people have asked in the chat. Um, and this one, I actually want to just take advantage of the fact that you are getting to observe the labor movement in the UK. And I know we probably have some people watching from there, but we also probably have some ignorant parochial Americans like myself who don't know enough about that um, part of the world. But my, I'm going to give you my general sense. You can tell me if I'm wrong, that um, things have taken a, a turn for the kind of, uh, a kind of rightward turn in, in the UK of late. Is that, and I guess I'm curious about how that relates to the existing labor movement and really the history of the labor movement in the UK or like, and really kind of the, you know, um, emergence of, of uh, xenophobia in the UK, as we've seen in the U S and South Africa and other, many other places in the world. But how does that relate? Um, do you think to the kind of like dense labor history and working class history that, that is there? Well, okay. I, I think what happened, you know, unions in in the in the UK until I don't know 30, 40 years ago, uh, obviously were much more militant and and more democratic. 
than uh, you know uh, U.S. Union. So uh, I, I came to uh, the U.K. in, in the uh, early '90s uh, for something, and uh, I went to uh, meet somebody at the headquarters of what was in the Transport and General Workers Union. And the size of their office was about the size of the average local union in the United States. In other words, the bureaucracy of the TNG, this historically militant union, was very small then. Today, today, it's an entirely different story. What they have done, they have taken too many cues from American unionism. In some cases, the SEIU has had a big influence uh, here. Uh, although there's also kind of a reaction against that because the SAO people tend to be so arrogant. Uh, but what has happened is that there have been these big merger movements in the last 20 years. So now more and more unions uh, are, are, are multi-jurisdictional. In order for these unions, uh, multi-jurisdictional merged unions to work, bureaucracy has, has grown and grown and grown. Um, and the, the they have become you know more bureaucratic in in the way that some not not like Teamsters but more like the AFT or the CWA or, or something like that you know I I've been we, we worked with uh, when I was at Labor House, we worked with a rank file group in the CWA that was trying to get direct votes for uh, the leadership and of course at a CWA convention. Nobody has denied the right to speak. I mean, they wouldn't dream of that. People line up at the microphones and shout and complain and curse the leadership and do whatever they want to. But as you pointed out with the AFP, somehow uh, it always comes out or mostly comes out the way, uh, you know, the leadership wanted it to come out because a lot of behind the scenes goes on. Um, well, that's more what has happened uh here in terms of particularly the major unions, what is now Unite, which used to be the Transport and General, and Unison, the pub public sector union, which is a merger of several uh, public sector unions over the years, uh, and, and other general unions. Um, so it, it's, um, they become, you know, from my point of view, they become too Americanized. Uh, put it one way. <laughs> We're being unfairly blamed for this. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, the other thing, though, is yes, um, there is a, of course, as in the United States, there is a, a rightward movement and has been for a long time, and it does impact the working class. It has big effect, particularly the same thing, particularly those sections of the, of the white working class that have lost out in, in the big change. <laughs> in the last uh, two decades or so or more. Um, so you have far right groups here that are quite thug-like and, and all the rest of it. I'm not saying they compose the majority of union members, but you have a lot of conservative union members now. And you have conservatives, like in the election that's taking place in Unite now, the, the opposition um, is not from the left. The opposition to the leadership, which is, in my opinion, which regards itself as being a left leadership, which isn't very left leadership, if you ask me, although they supported Jeremy Corbyn. But when it comes to union stuff, they're pretty conventional. Uh, but their opposition is coming from the right. 
saying, oh, you shouldn't be wasting your time on the Jeremy Corbyn's and the Labor Party and all this kind of stuff. You shouldn't, you know, all these issues, you know, Black Lives Matter, all, you shouldn't bother with that. Um, so, yes, this, this is going on here, too. And it's going on in France and, you know, uh, around Europe uh, generally. So a lot of those old traditions uh, are... I won't say completely gone because they linger on in a sort of cultural way. But yes, there's been a, been a big change and, and by and large, it's, it's not for the better. Um, there are attempts now and then to pile things, but we have a uh, problem I don't really want to go into with some of the sectarianism in the left here, which I think is actually worse than it is in the United States, yeah. frankly, uh, that has made union work has reduced union work just to running for office and high office. Mm. Yeah, you know, so uh, I think that is insufficient uh, and hasn't worked for a while. Uh, so yeah, that's that's the situation here is is not the same as in the U.S., but a lot of the things are, are similar. You know, like the Tories can now win in these traditional labor constituencies in the north. Well, you have to be a little careful because there's been big demographic changes. A lot of these towns that used to be industrial towns or mining towns and so forth, a lot of sort of, uh, they become, you know, bedroom communities for bigger cities or sort of professionals. So everybody there isn't a horny-handed son of uh, miners and, you know, all that kind of thing anymore. Uh, and the unions left. And the Labor Party deserted them. And Blair basically hollowed out the Labor Party. And unfortunately, Jeremy Corbyn did nothing to rebuild the, the base. They recruited a lot of people, but a lot of them were gone. You know? And they didn't leave behind any solid, what can I call it, rank and file organization in the Labor Party. Although I, I don't want to get into the Labor Party thing, that's a whole I, other. I, I purposely ask you that just 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 because I know we could we could spend a long time talking about it. Yeah. But um, I do want to tell you what some of the people who are actually watching us have this conversation are asking us. A bunch of people have asked us different questions about um, organizing outside of already organized sectors, outside of outside of unions. So, you know, given that only ten percent of the workforce is is unionized. Um, and even lower portions of the private sector, uh, how does the rank and file strategy apply? Um, somebody else asked, does it only make sense to engage in uh, workplace organizing within union workplaces? And somebody else asked about specifically in the UK, we have small new unions organizing mainly precarious workers, most notably the IWGB and the UVW, who have grown from very little to about 5,000 members each. It would be good to get your take on them. Um, what does this phenomenon say about the possibility of more new unions and transforming mainstream unions? And is there anything comparable in the U.S.? Um, okay, so organizing the unorganized. Uh, well, uh, I, it's, well, let me just start, go backwards and start with the, the, the new small uh, unions here. Mm. Uh, I think, you know, what has happened, and I, and I know some of the people who have worked in some of these and uh, uh, some of the story of, of what happened, like at, at SOAS, and um, that's the 
that kind of yeah. university setting and so forth with the cleaners, not not with the faculty, with the cleaners. Right. Uh, these are the types of workers the IWGB and, and the other new unions, and there, for a while it was the IWW, and then there are these splits and so forth. Uh, I think, though, these things are, are good. And what they're doing is they're organizing people that the big unions unite, which actually crushed the movement, and so as, which is why they're in one of these alternative unions. I think it's a good thing because they are organizing people the mainstream unions are not organizing. So, okay, if the mainstream unions were trying to organize them, I would say that's probably better to go that way, but they're not. So, they're filling a vacuum. And in fact, I would say if there are going to be upsurges in, in working class organization, we're going to see new organizations, just like we did in the 30s, just like we did with the civil, uh, with the public sector workers in, in 60s and 70s. Uh, you know, you're going to see new organizations. Um, I think the old existing unions are, for the most part, unfortunately, either do not have the resources to do it or simply are stuck in organizing models that are too narrow and, and so forth. So, yes, I think there will be new things. And, uh, you know, I'm aware of these, these groups. Um, so I, I say more power to them. You know, if you can organize these low-income uh, uh, immigrant workers, mostly they're immigrant workers they're organizing, then great. Let's, let's do that. Uh, as to the bigger question of how we organize the unorganized, I think that it's going to have to be, uh, in, in the United States, it's going to have to be a, a kind of dialectic between people organizing themselves, you know, and the unions either responding or new organizations coming up. Um, the unions that exist in the United States do not have the resources to organize these vast new sectors of the economy that have appeared. Uh, you know, if you look at the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the Forbes list of the top 10 or 20 corporations from 2000, I just did this to 2020, they're like totally different. The big ones, the old big ones, they're all gone. I mean, they're not right. gone, but they're way down the list. And then the new ones like Amazon and Google and, and all of these and some others, um, you know, uh, have moved up. And so we have a change in, in capital, change in the capitalist class, I would argue, actually. Um, and if we're going to organize these new sections or the old, I, I think it's still important to organize manufacturing. Uh, auto. Yeah, auto industry needs to be organized, you know, and it's there. And there is no reason on earth why it can't be organized if if the unions or if people in those plants or people who they know help them, you know, to organize uh, from the ranks, to organize up. It's just okay. not going to happen that we're going to organize everything from the top down. That's never happened that way. Uh, you know, that, that's a myth that somehow these brilliant organizers, you know, in the 30s came in, John Lewis and blah, 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 you know, and they organized everybody. That's baloney. That isn't how it happened. Nor is that how it happened in, in the upsurge of public sector workers in the United States. So the same thing is, that's why I say I think the rank and file strategy applies to new organizing 
you know, in, in exactly the same way. That is that people need to organize themselves and socialists can help with this, uh, either by being there, actually, and part of the workforce, which more and more of them actually are, whether they want to or not. Uh, and, you know, they, they can help with that process, but it's got to come, it's got to come from the bottom. Because that's where the power is. The power isn't in some building with a bunch of staff and, and a big bank account and all that. You need those things. But, uh, you know, it's not going to organize the new industries. And I think we have to think about using the way industry has been reorganized. For example, you know, the, the giant concentration of all these kinds of industries, including even manufacturing, in the major metropolitan areas. Right. Uh, you know, that there's still a lot of factories, you know, out in the boonies along the interstates and all that. But the bulk of these things are, I've been relocating into these metro areas. And that's where the movements take place, the social movement. That's where the base, particularly, you know, people of color and so forth, that's where they are concentrated. That's the workforce of these new industries, too. So it seems to me that we need a a kind of geographic focus on this. And that also gets back to this question of looking at logistics, looking at the weak, vulnerable points of our employers, you know, and seeing where it is most effective. Uh, if we can bring out everybody, that's great. But I somehow doubt that everybody at Amazon is going to all come out at once, you know, magically. It's going to happen because there are going to be some big, high-profile victories here and there. I hope that's one of them, but I think some of them will have to be direct action ones for this thing to spread. Right. So, rank of file organization, direct action, uh, these are the, you know, the key, uh, the key elements to, to organizing, you know, to the self-organization of these work. Yeah, I, w- I would add just a couple of things that I think agree with what you're saying, but flesh them out maybe a little bit, which is, one, I think in some of these kind of industries where you have a lot of part-time workers working at multiple uh, locations, right? And there's a bunch of, you know, my job is like that in academia. My job is also like that as a delivery driver. That's also true of a lot of service workers who work in the restaurant industry or work in retail. Um, I think really going back to that model of a hiring hall is the way that we should start thinking about that in geographic areas. Um, Because I think um, that's really how a lot of this uh, that's how you can build actually leverage, I think, from from the bottom up in terms of organizing the unorganized. And whether you then join an existing union or not, I think starting from that kind of perspective gives you a basis, right, for negotiating the terms on which you're going to join whatever existing union or build this new organization or join somebody else who's building a new worker organization. Um, that's kind of my thought about that sort of uh, area of, of, of struggle. But then you talk, when you talk about something like Amazon or other kind of big, um, uh, you know, huge, huge but Leviathan corporations that, that we really need to take on, I think, um, just as Kim said, that the existing unions don't have the resources, they don't necessarily really have the political will, and they don't necessarily even have the skills or the the tools that they need to actually organize Amazon. And so they're not going to be able to do that alone. I, I, I know that this exists and I think more of it should exist that people who are 
socialists who are interested in the rank and file strategy should be working at Amazon and trying to organize at lots of different locations, as many locations as possible, because that's going to be part of what connects these spontaneous uprisings in different warehouses and shops when they happen. It's going to be what connects um, successful actions in different workplaces. And it's going to be what makes it possible to make decisions about how to orient toward the various unions that are now trying to organize Amazon and, and will be doing that with varying degrees of varying degrees of success. I think that's extremely important. And but also, you know, this this applies to more than just Amazon, that kind of model, I think, of trying to do this, do that precisely as socialists. So I'm very much in favor of that idea of doing some rank and file, uh, rank and file organizing outside of the um, existing unions. Um, let me also make sure that other people get some of their questions in because people are very excited to talk to us. Um, so, oh, Kim, because you were just visiting with them. Somebody asked if you could talk, tell us just a little bit about the uh, Columbia and NYU graduate student strikes that you, uh, I know you were, you were talking to the Columbia students, I think yesterday or the day before, something like that, right? Uh, yes, actually, unfortunately, I, I don't know that much about the Columbia strike because although they put on the event, it was actually people from uh, graduate unions all over the country. Uh, so it didn't actually focus on um, on that strike. Um, so I, I can't really give an update. Uh, you know, I, I looked on, try to uh, see what's going on, but... I, I haven't found anything. So, well, Asker wants to know if you'd be in favor of linking up the two strikes, and I, I don't actually even know what that means in the nitty gritty context. But like in general, I think we're probably in favor of linking up strikes when it's possible to do that. Um, well, I, I think what they were doing is is good because these graduate student unions—they're not all affiliated with the same union. Some are in the UAW, some are in the AFD, and, and so right. on and so forth. Well, NYU and, and and Columbia are both in the UAW. Yeah, but they were bringing in people from all the different unions to right. you know kind of a cross union rank and file uh, thing is what they were doing. Right. Uh, it actually arose because of the article I wrote on Jane McAlevey's uh, strategy for for organizing. Uh, Inspector. So, yeah, yeah, uh, that's right. And and they wrote that and and they uh, McNally's uh, thing and put the two together and you know, that seemed good. So good work, Inspector. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to say one thing though that you kind of touched on, and that is. One of the problems with unions is, you know, even even the best of them in, in a certain way is that the leadership never that horizontal communications between locals, between workers in different workplaces is not encouraged, to put it mildly, in most cases. Um, you can go to the union convention and you meet people or you can try to meet them, you know, or maybe you have a regional council, but it's going to be the elected officials and so on and so forth. So historically, the left actually fulfills that vacuum. That is one of the things that if you look at what the Socialist Party or the Communist Party or the Mustyite, the people like that did in the 30s, was that, you know, not only did they put out um, shop floor uh, information things, but their papers and, and their pamphlets and these things provided education across the union that, that linked rank and file people nationally uh, or right. at least regionally 
you know, and, and that's a role that the left has to learn uh, to play if it's going to be effective. Because actually, having things like newsletters and and so forth is is actually a very important. I didn't talk about that. Good at all. Important part of of how you organize these things. We can provide information and analysis that most workers don't have access to. Uh, so you know, we give them that access. Uh, so I think that's important. Yeah, I mean, I guess one thing I wanted to add on to our our collective answer here now is also that I think this is increasingly important precisely because like Amazon and other logistics oriented companies have really consciously built in system redundancy into their logistics operations as a way of being able to to isolate struggle that's in one one particular location. And so to succeed, really, the the rebellion's going to have to break out in multiple places at once and in places that are kind of specifically multiple um, and, and connection across that horizontal connection is going to be absolutely necessary to be able to even know what that is exactly. Um, so just on a very practical level, that's important and, and a role that socialists can play, but actually you've done such an excellent job, Kim, um, answering before I asked some of the other questions that people have asked. I'm going to read them to you because I think some of, some of this has already come out in your answers, but Maybe you will. Maybe we will want to elaborate on some um, more of them. Um, but there's one that we one that we haven't answered yet. I think so. We're gonna. I'm gonna end on that one. But just to say, I, I do think we talked a little bit about here. What's the specific role of socialists today in building workplace power? It often defaults to like organizing skills or convincing coworkers to participate um, in in the union or in electoral efforts. Um, I, you know, I think we actually have talked about something broader than that. You haven't, and also I, I, I think I goaded you and, and discussed a little bit that socialists do more than just be good workers and good organizers, but also be people that raise political struggle that, you know, in the workplace where, where that is appropriate, use political struggle, bring people into workplace struggle, and also connect the dots, right, between these various kinds of maybe seemingly unrelated struggle and activity. And as you said, really connected up also between just like basic communication across uh, workplaces, across sectors, um, that kind of thing. I think we definitely, I mean, I think we definitely have to think of the role of socialists as being something better than just like good at organizing. Um, One of the other uh, questions that I think we've already touched on is um, what are effective organs of mediation between work Broader theoretical knowledge of militant minority and pre or non-militant workers, especially in the face of widespread demoralization. And I think that's where you were talking about kind of like shop floor newsletters. And then, of course, like labor notes sort of got founded in part on this, uh, you know, as as a precisely a kind of bridge right between certain kinds of information and, and knowledge. Um, yes. Uh, I think that. Um, Socialists can provide these things, and you know, I would say, in in terms of educational stuff, um, you know, labor notes has become a, even beyond when I worked there. You know, an incredible educational uh, institution, really, that provides exactly the kind of analysis and and news and educational work that is kind of between the high theory and the day to day kind of union behavior and so forth. So it's, it, 
it's a big aid. If people want to organize in, in their shop, they should do that. Um, they can get later notes, secrets of a successful organizer, which is a little booklet, a book that has lots of great ideas about how to do things. Uh, they can go to the schools. Uh, you know, now they're mostly virtual things, but before they were actual things that took place all over the country. Uh, I don't know how staff that size puts on that many things, but well, they, they get workers to do it. Well, yeah, the they don't. They don't do all of it, right? Yeah. Oh no, that's what they have to do. But somebody has to coordinate to see that happens. And nonetheless, I think you know it's it. I'm surprised that, that it's the only thing like it in in the U.S. It's and that in the U.K. there is nothing like it now. There used to be. My, my wife used to do this thing called Trade Union News, which tried to do the same thing. It was destroyed by the left, uh, particularly the CP, I would say. Uh, but at any rate, <clears throat> um, it's surprising to me that there aren't more things like that because the need, the, you know, we always found uh, in, the, in the unions where we had contacts, which was a growing number of them, even back then, uh, that people were just, just hungry for the, for the kind of knowledge. We did a lot of training back then on how to deal with labor management cooperation programs and lean production. Uh, now they're doing you know, more stuff on direct action and, and different kinds of things. But um, yeah, there, there's, there's a huge demand for that. And, and I'm sort of surprised that there isn't actually more of that. Uh, you know, so that, that I think is an important thing. Um, yeah, socialists, I mean, even my experience is a long time ago in a different era and all of that, but when I was uh, on strike in the CWA uh, in the early 70s, a big, long, militant strike, uh, one of those kind of strikes of that era, uh, we did all kinds of things. We, we organized a contingent of telephone workers to, to go to the big anti-war demonstrations all the time, uh, and you could do that. You know, it's not impossible. Not everybody agreed with that, of course, but you, you could do that. Um, and we did. Uh, and, you know, we did things around race and, and gender that I think were before their time, but, you know, frankly, Definitely. sort of. Uh, <laughs> uh, you, you can do these things now because the movements, it, what made it easy then was that the movements were there outside. So you weren't addressing a vacuum. Right. You were saying, we're going to go on this thing. We're going to go to this Black Lives Matter right. thing. We're going to go to this Women's March, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Uh, and, and there is absolutely no reason, you know, why you can't do that. Whether you want to do it as your caucus per se or just you doing it with people you know, you know, that's a tactical question. But you can do these things and, and you should. Uh, you know, so, I think so Kip, we don't, have, we don't have enough time to, uh, I think, answer the last question, but I want to not avoid it. I don't want to not mention it, but but we need a little bit of time because I have to I have to ask everybody to give us money at the end before before they leave. So um, the last very last question is people asking us, um, what do we think about the role of the DSA and the rank and file strategy um, or or long term socialist groups? Can can it along with other socialist groups and networks play a role as a party a pre party formation or is it too premature? to think about this before large enough rank and file mass movement in the U.S. So you get exactly 90 seconds to answer that question. No, two minutes. Um, DSA, pre-party, it, I, party. 
ESA and the socialist groups have a big role to play here, but they need to to focus on that. You know, the, the big debates at ESA now are about electoral activity and, you know, all, all of this sort of thing. Um, that's going to happen, you know, whether we like it or not. But I think, yes, there's a big role, uh, you know, for, for people. If you look at the Chicago Teachers Union, um, in, in its early infancy when they formed CORE and everything, you know, who were the leaders in that? Well, I know who they were. Uh, they were people from at least three different socialist groups, which ordinarily right. would be at each other's uh, throats. And they managed right. somehow to overcome all that old bullshit and actually work together to, to create this fantastic rank and file organization and, and eventually have the strike and then take over the union, you know, and, and so forth. Take over and the we, just, we just lost Karen Lewis, just passed away. So I just want to mention that. that. Yeah. It's sad. He was um, quite a leader. Quite a leader. So, yes, you can have different, if people get sensible, and I think people, in, in when it comes to this sort of stuff, maybe are getting more sensible than perhaps some of us were in the past uh, about this, that you can have people who don't agree on everything. You don't have to agree on electoral politics to do this. It'd be nice if could and be even nicer if you didn't waste your time in the Democratic Party. But nonetheless, you're going to have people who are going to be Democrats and you're going to have people who are to the right of you and all the rest of it. But I think it's important that the socialists in a, in a workplace or trade union setting uh, get their act together and, and work together, you know, to develop a perspective. Follow the example of the teachers union. This is a good example right. as any. Uh, you know, and uh, or, or TDU, and you know, where the same is the case. Uh, you know, everybody doesn't agree on everything. So, yes, I think there's plenty of opportunity for this, and that is what people should be doing. That's my 90 seconds. Okay, that's pretty good. That, that was close to 90 seconds. So, I'm gonna not answer that question, but if you want my answer to that question, you can read my three part uh, article on Kim and the Rank and File Strategy because it really goes into detail on my, my answer to that particular question. Um, but what I want to do now is to thank you all for joining us here with, um, for, for, you know, with, at the Spectre event and really ask you to please support Spectre. Um, we are just kind of finishing up a really um, necessary fundraising drive. And when I say necessary, I mean uh, we are, you know, need money now to be able to put out the, third print issue of Spectre on time. Um, and without money, we won't be able to do that. So that's that's one of the reasons that we're really asking people who support the project to donate and also to subscribe. And um, you know, if you have friends um, and family and comrades who are not subscribers to Spectre that you think would like it, you should subscribe for them or convince them to subscribe. Um, that's something I do a lot. And I, I actually get a lot of really excellent feedback from people about their excitement to read really what is what is I think a quite beautiful print journal and also somebody who did actually um, donate a fair amount of money to Spectre uh, in this for this drive at least um, in our in our kind of piggy bank terms um, asked me kind of what made you start a journal now or how did like what why why do we need another socialist journal um, what's special about Spectre why should I give and I thought it was a really good question because my response to that was how many um, explicitly revolutionary Marxist 
uh, journals do you know right now that are in print that are published in print? And I, I, I challenge you to name any, especially, especially not ones that are not associated exclusively with one particular uh, left organization or group. Um, so I'm excluding newspapers, but I think in that sense, we're quite unique. We really try to appeal and represent a kind of broad range of the revolutionary left in the United States and really try to host debates as well as I think raise some of the practical questions, information and experiences that people have that are kind of relevant to all these broad questions and debates. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.